and welcome to Rationality, a brand new podcast where we three gentlemen of different political persuasions meet every single week to discuss the big stories from around the country. We want to exchange views, not insults, and try to make sense of it all while still having a little fun. Hello and um, welcome to this week's episode. So again, sitting remotely with Guy and Deepak. We're recording today on the back of news yesterday that His Royal Highness, uh, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, uh, sadly passed away at the age of 99. Um, we, we, as a three, sort of had a chat about with how we would handle it and we decided we just wanted to... Um, obviously express our condolences to the royal family and um, express our, our our sorrow that he's passed away, having lived a, a long and happy and um, up until recently very healthy life. So, um, yes, feeling uh, feeling for, for them in this in this difficult time. Uh, so, so, Guy, what, what have you been up to this week? Well, uh, of course, I went to pay my respects at the palace the other day um, and then otherwise have been pretty ensconced in my coursework perfect and and Deepak yeah it's been um quite a relaxed week obviously I'm off work with the Easter break went to see the in-laws so I went to their garden spent a bit of time there first time I'd been there and yeah just looking forward to getting a haircut next week I think that's like, uh, more than anything else <laughs> yeah. and that's about it really <laughs> I'm getting the nickname Curtains at the moment because that's, what, uh, that, that's the look I'm currently rocking. I'm with you there, Deepak. All my hair seems to be growing at the back of my head. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's longer at the front, but it's just coming down like a wave at the back. I've got a tail. <laughs> just, just, to, yeah. just to describe Guy's appearance to, to the listeners, um, it's, it's, it's one of the impeccably neat side partings that I've never seen him not adorned with. <laughs> So I think, uh, Guy, you, your um, your your chosen hairstyle hides a, a multitude of ills. Yes, exactly. Well, one of the main reasons I do it. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. In the news this week, um, an LBC investigation into asylum seekers removed from Britain without having their cases properly heard, uh, in combination with stories across the media. So whether they be um, from the Refugee Council or, or independent uh, investigations by newspapers like The Independent, uh, effectively finding that we are asking people to inhabitate within uh, unsuitable and, uh, and squalid conditions. Um, so, Guy, uh, you know, how, do, how do you view the situation and what do, you, what do you think our responsibility is and should be? Well, I, I would say first that as a lawyer, procedural justice is something very close to my heart. Um, and so I find it very, uh, I suppose, upsetting to find where those with res- significant responsibility are failing in their duty to um, provide the appropriate channels. I suppose what I could, would also say is the situation is very difficult. Uh, in that at the same time as we're having to currently to deal with a large influx of refugees, we're also trying to cope with a major international health crisis um, and a a number of of other very significant um, issues such as Brexit and the issues in Northern Ireland, as we're going to discuss, which are taking a lot of government bandwidth. So to that extent, I suppose it's not then surprising that you're going to see what a that you are going to see issues such as uh, refugees and other 
perhaps more um, bureaucratic elements slipping through the cracks. So, and and in terms, so just to go back to the the first question, then uh, the main question, which was, what do you see as our responsibility to these refugees? To, to some extent, that's not actually a difficult question, in that one would naturally one can easily say that there is a moral responsibility incumbent on all nations able who are able to provide a channel for refugees to be able to find asylum. So, insofar as we're failing in that channel, our responsibility is to shore it up, make sure that it, it functions appropriately and effectively and efficiently. There is a more significant debate about whether or not the, the domestic uh, the the domestic bringing in of refugees needs to be expanded. However, I would suggest that that is counterbalanced and perhaps more importantly so by activities taken closer to the territories themselves. And I, I, I don't just mean um, activities within the countries, but also within the surrounding countries by by our own nation. So, for example, recent parliamentary papers, well, a couple of years ago now perhaps, um, have shown that the UK has provided the second highest amount of investment after the US into um, refugee care and infrastructure in territories around places like Syria and, and the other uh, fraught places in the Middle East. So most of what Britain might, one might say Britain's responsibility to act has been done closer to those territories than domestically. So what? So I suppose I would say I think Britain does have a responsibility. I think that it needs to work on the channels which it has set up if it's, not, if it's failing in its responsibility to, to uh, adhere to them properly, as seems to be the case. Um, but I don't think its broader responsibilities are necessarily failing. Okay, and Deepak, um, similar question to you. Then, how how do you react to the the main story, which is obviously um, the story around what our responsibilities are, and 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 perhaps perhaps that we may be failing in certain areas, as guys kind of alluded to, maybe in certain areas, but um, in you know, with mitigating circumstances or factors that we aren't failing in elsewhere. Um, what do you see as our responsibility as a nation to, to, to refugees? I think it's important to take into account um, the things that Guy mentioned, first of all, um, the mitigating factors that are in place. But at the same time, um, <clears throat> you have to also consider how limiting they actually are on the problems that they're facing. So if we're saying they don't have adequate legal representation, um how much would that necessarily be impacted by those factors as well? And and it fits into a wider issue like we've seen before where there's been instances where, um, like we all know about the hostile environment policy, don't we? So we've got this hostile environment policy since 2012 or 2013 where um, it's seen as like an achievement to make it as difficult as possible to allow sort of um, certain groups to live here if they don't have the right documentation and everything. And the rules that Priti Patel wants to introduce as Home Secretary um, 
are potentially troublesome as well as some of the language she's used. So when we're talking about legal representation in particular, and I'm sure guys probably um, got a few thoughts on this too, <clears throat> like words such as lefty activist lawyers or do-gooders. I don't know if you remember all that. There was there was some serious issues around that, and I think there was um, some sort of petition as well, um, which had like 800 signatures on there or something, talking about how troublesome that language is. Also, there was she did have some warnings by some people sort of warning her that that language is quite divisive and ha- had actually possibly led to acts of violence against lawyers and solicitors as well. And argu- arguably politicising a humanitarian issue, you know, yeah, party politicising. Uh, yeah. and, and sort of mimicking the language of sort of l- like a like lawyer, lawyer baiting populism um, yeah, yeah. sort of thing and like attacking like the rule of law. <clears throat> and and that all fits into this wider picture of just like creating an environment which is difficult and um, making it seem okay that it might not it, it might be okay not to have legal representation for some of these people, um, seemingly because maybe they're worth less than anyone else, um, in some way, um, in their opinion. But yeah, that sort of language is divisive and that doesn't help as well. Um, Guy, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Did you know about this? I, I do. Um, and firstly, I, w- I would say I completely ag- agree. Legal representation is, a cur- is currently a very serious issue in, in this country. But it's not something that's solely uh, an issue for refugees. It's, it's a massive issue mm. across all those who are uh, deprived in, in, in this country. Um, and really, for me, that's one of the, the currently the biggest scandals. Not talked about that much, surprisingly, these days, but I certainly think it's one of the current biggest scandals of the um, well, past 10 years or so, really. Um, and so I wouldn't say that in insofar as there are rep- representation issues for refugees, I wouldn't say that's necessarily indicative of our, our bad approach towards refugees, but more just the the wider issue of of limited representation in, in the country. And I understand the, the the economic factors. Of course, we, we we do have a limited budget, and and legal representation is very expensive, especially for a lot of people. And there are a lot of cases at the moment, so it is going to be more diffuse. Um, particularly, and there's a backlog, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, huge it's backlog. backlog. It's um, Legal procedure, and I don't, I don't just mean you know the day-to-day course of it, I mean the whole structure of the system is one of the most complicated things that any nation has to run. Um, and so on to the point of language, at the, on top of, of the difficulties of, of organising uh, a legal system, not just from the perspective of the government, but of the, of the lawyers themselves, it's definitely not helpful um, when they, they have uh, uh, aggressive language directed at them by uh, the government. And in fact, one of the oldest conventions, uh, well, that's not true, but one of a very long-standing, shall we say, convention in this country is that the government doesn't comment on the lawyers and the lawyers mm. don't comment on the government <laughs> except insofar mm. as, as private citizens. Um, mm. And that's very important. But we've that's been steadily undermined uh, really ever since um, the, the legal reforms carried out on, under Tony Blair where we fully integrated uh, the Department of Justice into the, into the government rather than it being this sort of quasi-autonomous thing under the Lord Chancellor. Um, and I, again, I think that was one of the most unfortunate reforms of that period because essentially it's really weakened the Minister for Justice, Lord Chancellor's role in protecting the independence of the judiciary and protecting the wider legal mm. profession. 
Um, and so we've seen a lot of silence from uh, that minister over a number of occasions where we, we've had uh, aggression towards, uh, for example, over uh, the Miller case, aggression towards the, 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 the legal world. Um, and that's not good. That's really not good. So when it comes then to, to the human rights lawyers, as it happens, yes, a lot of human rights lawyers are left-leaning. It is one of the, if you look at the demographics of those who go on into de- uh, human rights law, it just so happens that they, they, they do vote um, leftwards. But it's their job. You mentioned before about um, some, the, the, the policy passed under, under Blair's Labour sort of 20-odd years ago. Um, what uh, what was that policy then, and what was the motivation for it? Because I'm not across that. So this is one of my bugbears, and it annoys me to this day. And not just because you know I'm sad about the the changing clothing and stuff, um, but there are some serious there's some serious issues. Um, essentially, this is the 2005 constitutional uh, reforms, um, and it was a massive reform to the House of Lords, to the Lord Chancellor, and to what was then the uh, appellant. What's the official title? Something, something like the Appellant Court of the House of Lords or, or, or Appellant Committee. I've, I've forgotten the exact title, but essentially it's the House of Lords Court where the judges used to sit. That was then transformed into the Supreme Court. Um, and essentially it was Tony Blair's rather limited understa- or seemingly limited understanding of the British Constitution uh, being influenced by... Uh, the Essentially by the American approach to doing things, uh, sort of and uh, his understanding of how the separation of powers worked. And he tried to do a rather sort of blunt approach and just say, look, we separate everything nice and clearly, so uh, we can't have this sort of quasi, this weird thing where the Lord Chancellor is both a judge and a member of the government. Let's separate them all out, um, create a Supreme Court, separate Speaker of the House of Lords, uh, Minister for Justice, and he'll sort of still have responsibility for the Constitution and protecting them, but it's, he's, he's mostly a government minister. Um, so his his aim really was to change the British Constitution towards a, a more American approach. Problem was, uh, I, I don't think he really understood what he was doing fully. So, for example, one of the first, I can't remember if it was the president of the Supreme Court or he's one of the first members of the Supreme Court, described it as a back of a postcard plan, which doesn't bode very well. And, and um, they've been a bit dis- dismissive of the change, but we are where we are now. OK, so... so um... What, what what sort of ramification then does that have? Say, for example, you you sort of directly draw a line between uh, between that reform and and poorer representation, legal representation for um, sort of anyone, the, the the people of the country. So, how wh- how and where do you draw that? The line? line I was drawing is essentially to do with the position of the Lord Chancellor, in that because the Lord Chancellor was. was the most senior judge pretty much um he always had to be a lawyer he always had to be fully integrated into the system there Uh, and that meant he was highly keyed on to the constitution and protecting the legal uh, institutions against uh, any aggression from the government i suppose one could also say as regards uh costs for representation uh there's a good argument to say that moving to the Supreme Court and maintaining the new Supreme Court is a lot more expensive than formerly just using a committee room, uh, as used to happen in the, in the House of Lords, um, which means there's, no, there's less money for the institution. But my what I found was more important was the, the point about the Lord Chancellor's responsibility in holding um, the government to account as regards the independence of the, the legal profession. 
And that being undermined over the past number of years has may cause problems. So, it, so that there's potentially a line between um, a, a sort of pattern of events that are set in place by that legislation, which ultimately has, you feel, given um, politicians and commentators more, uh, more, more, more ammunition to fire at. Um, at lawyers and made it sort of more more acceptable. Well, commentators are free to to do as they will, but uh, well, within the law. Um, but as far as as far as the government is concerned, I do feel that that's a danger. Particularly that, for example, Liz Truss, when she was Lord Chancellor, failed to stand up for the um, hi- uh, High Court judges when they were being lambasted by the Daily Mail as enemies of the, of the people or enemies of the state, um, and and, it, and events like that. Um, I, I think that's a serious issue, uh, but and I relate that because to you, the rest. Sorry, just to just just to sort of drill down on that, yeah. just for for myself and, and for listeners, you feel like because of the sort of rules that had been rewritten and because of the uh, sort of codes of practice that had then been kind of changed. So uh, effectively, Liz Truss, even though her job is to represent and have the backs of, for want of a better expression, those high court judges, but because they had found against her, she was effectively in a position where she either has to uh, betray her post as justice minister or she has to go against her party line. Um, so there are a number of problems which come from the change, but as you've outlined it, is certainly one of the one of the major ones. That's an example that um, you know effectively this change causes some conflict of interest in terms of government and um, and in in bringing them in together. If you have high court judges, arguably there find... was always a conflict of interest, which is why they introduced the change. The problem is that the way they've done the change means that means that the culture has has, has shifted, and so that the insofar as there are conflict of interest existing, it comes into practice perhaps more often. Back to refugees. Um, are we currently doing enough domestically, Deepak? There's two ways we need to look at it. I mean, first of all, we've, we've just discussed the uh, legal, rep- legal representation side. Uh, we've also made some comments in the past about the Napier barracks, which were deemed not fit for purpose, not a safe place to... Um, so that's the well, sort of holding not, yeah, camp. Yeah, inhabitable sort of thing. And also, mm-hmm. um, loads of people have commented on it. We had the HMIP talking about it. British Red Cross made comment on it. Public Health England. So a lot of bodies have mentioned how bad this place is. But the government have just responded by... The last I heard, I think a couple of days ago, was that they were planning to send people back there again anyway without necessarily having made the changes they were asked to make. Um, oh, did you hear that they weren't planning on making changes? I, I thought that they were, were planning on doing that before bringing people back in. No, the last I read was some, some, something like Public Health England was saying um, none of the changes they've requested have actually taken place yet, um, but they're willing to, they're, they're planning on sending people back there pretty soon. So either they need to um, sort that out soon or it looks like it'll be the same as it was before without actually responding to those requests. But we'll have to keep an yeah. eye on that, I think, and to see what happens with it. Um, the other way of looking at things, we also have to look at what, what the Home sec- Secretary is actually planning. Uh, I don't know if you guys have actually had a chance to see what her plans are. She outlined them recently. Um, just to cover some of the things that she's intending to do. Uh, I'll just go through a couple of them, and this is one of the ones I have the biggest issue with. So 
she wants to rule asylum claims from people who travel through safe countries inadmissible. Uh, but at the same time, she wants to provide indefinite leave to remain for people who come through so-called legal routes, such as resettlement schemes. The problem with this is it's going to differentiate unjustly between pe- pe- people who are refugees. She's going to decide who are deserving and undeserving refugees who might be fleeing things like war and terror in the places they come from based on how they've traveled here. And it's been and it's like a it's been a thing which has been said said for years. It's really difficult to come here, um, like, the, in the terms of the fairness rule. It's really difficult to come here, uh, lawfully for an asylum seeker. It's actually quite hard because there's a lack of safe routes and everything. Um, and and because that's the case, you and as you know, you can't apply for asylum once you're at the borders. You have to be at the border of the state you're planning to enter before you can claim asylum. Sorry, Deepak, just on that, do you, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, do you think the UK still shares a respon- um, still owes a responsibility to Europe to share the burden? I mean, I can, I can sort of come in on that, mm. if, if, if that's OK. I, I think um, it's not an, an, a UK-EU conversation. Yeah, I think, I think, I think Britain has that. responsibility to the asylum seekers. So um, I think that morally we can be judged compared with similar countries and economies, which, yes, do happen to be uh, EU members in terms of in terms of demographics and geography. And I I think that sort of the comparison in terms of um, setting the rules out in terms of what's our fair share in terms of numbers isn't necessarily helpful in the context of uk versus eu i think well i'm intrigued why why is it then that that uh that both of you seem very clear in your minds that if a a refugee has passed through say a number of of um safe territories say for example italy then france or italy switzerland france why is it that there is a continuing responsibility to take that refugee on when they've had uh, the opportunity to settle in the, in those countries? I think ultimately, when you're when you're fleeing for your life or fleeing for your safety, but you're not still fleeing in those countries. You're you're safe there. The reason the re- the reason why I think a lot of people aim to uh, come to the UK and the reason why is because they feel like the UK is is the country that's going to give them the best chance of of setting up and and um, and, and and making the best life for themselves. Now that's exactly it. That's that's the interesting point. Is it the responsibility? And I'm I'm just I'm just trying to work out what your thought patterns are. are. Is it the responsibility of Britain to be the optimal choice for these people rather than just a a potential safe haven to those who are most in need? I think every human ultimately wants the best life for themselves and their family. The only way, in my view, that the UK is going to make itself less appealing to people from other countries is to make itself less appealing full stop yes and i don't support well i that. fully agree with you there <laughs> but when you get to that point it seems to me then you, sh- you should be verging more on the edge of being treated as an ordinary immigrant than a refugee because you're seeking the best life and i agree that that is a not i wouldn't describe it as a fundamental right but i would definitely say that one should have that opportunity i fully 100 percent agree with that 
But it seems to me that, 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 that that's no longer truly an, an, an issue strictly for refugees. Well, I think um, it, it, it's, it's, it's on the seeker of asylum, the asylum seeker, to seek asylum where they choose fit. There is no legal requirement for them to settle in the nearest safe country. Absolutely. But we're, we're talking about moral responsibilities, and I'm, I'm trying to understand why it would be a moral responsibility. I think it is the moral responsibility of the, com- the country that the person chooses to seek asylum to assess that fairly that case fairly i think that's the key point is assessing it fairly when if they do decide to come here and i think guy does have a a fair point but at the same time you have to remember the reasons why they may choose to come here so we've mentioned you mentioned a couple of things there but we need to think about why they think this is the best place it's primarily because of the quality of education uh family ties sometimes as well and also um primary language being english which they know is obviously a good skill to have and develop. So that's mainly some of the reasons why. And a lot better relations between cases, different yeah, races. And some of the cases I've seen as well, it's it's often the case that because they've gone through so much turmoil and stress getting to the first countries they've arrived at, they see coming to England as the next step, which is like, because we've gone through so much to get where we are now, let's just take this final step and go to the, you know, go to, go to the UK. And I think they kind of take that approach to it. Um, and I agree with what Hector's saying. I think once they are here, um, we do have to respect um, the journey they've made and what their intentions are and give them the league representation they need and support them and treat them in a humane way. Um, well, I, I completely agree with you in as, in as far yeah. as the process is concerned. I really do. Um, I, think, I think you make a really interesting point, though, Guy, about what do they then become? So you mentioned about... Um, like we use terms such as refugee, asylum, seek, uh, asylum seeker or uh, migrant and these sorts of things or um, economic migrant. There's all sorts of phrases used for different things that people are doing. And you make a really good point. Does their status change then or ha- are they perceived differently if they've come through a safe country to come here? I think that's an, an interesting um, starting point for another conversation. Well, well yeah, uh, I, I would, you, you raise the issue of what has to be. It has to be evaluated fairly. And again, I agree. Mm-hmm. But as as part of that equation, surely the fact that they are undertaking the the application from a safe country already, that they're no longer in immediate danger, surely that must form part of the equation. Well, I mean, I I just just to apply some sort of numerical context before we go on, then um, we've got um, some figures here from the uh, UNHCR, the UN um, Refugee Agency. Um, so the year ending September 2020, the UK received three, um, 31,752 asylum applications. Mm. Uh, over the same period, asylum ap- applications to other comparable countries. Uh, so the same period, we've got um, Germany with 155,000. Two hundred ninety-five. France, one hundred twenty-nine thousand four hundred eighty. Spain, with one hundred twenty-eight thousand five hundred twenty, and Greece, with eighty-one thousand four hundred sixty-five. So, there is for me. There's this rhetoric in the media at the moment that is that everyone is bypassing <laughs> all of these countries uh, in the aim of coming here, whereas you know one fifth, pretty much of the people come here, for example, uh, seeking asylum compared to Germany. You know, when you're talking about such a small number, I mean, Greece, for instance, with 
sort of 50,000 fewer people applied in 2020 to come and seek asylum here than they did in Greece. Um, the, there's a Deepak before mentioned sort of familial ties and, and English as a second language. That would be a big tie for me if I if I were fleeing my home country and I had, say, for example, first language Arabic, but pretty good English as a second language. That's why I'd go. That's enough for me as enough of a reason for me to go. I've got the best chance of setting up for myself and my family because I have decent English. And I think that we are conditioned to, I mean, the word economic migrants is one that's thrown around a lot by people who um, use expressions like the dinghy express and and who um, get 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 kicks out of the idea of Pretty Patel using warships to protect our channel from all of these swathes of people. For me, it, it's, economic migrants is a particularly unhelpful and irrelevant label with regards to these people. It, it, I think we uh, fundamentally, it's not about sort of one-upmanship between us and Europe. It's not that we aren't doing our bit, it's that we are taking on fewer people than than many corners of British media would have us believe. And, um, you know, it, it's it's not about people coming to leech off the state. They want to make the best life for themselves and their family. Well, there's a... I see what you're getting at, Hector. But there is a limited pool of resources for dealing with these issues. Uh, it's very easy to dehumanise the issue, and the issue is a human issue. Yes, although fundamentally, nonetheless, the schools and hospitals, etc., are, are very important aspects um, which need to be addressed. Um, because, as we said before, the reason Britain is, is attractive... Um, is for a number of reasons, including the English as well, but also the availability of, 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 of things like hospitals and, and schools. Um, and so you're quite correct to say that Britain, compared with comparable European countries, domestically takes on far fewer of these people, of these refugees. But again, comparably, it does far more than those European countries extranationally with uh, either in the uh, borders of the refuge, refugees nation or in next door countries so yes it's not taking a lot of these people on domestically but arguably far better for them it's providing for uh, refugees and housing them in the uh, immediate proximity which is far safer to travel to and causes far less tensions and is far less burdensome. And just to be clear, are we talking about refugee camps? Uh, so sometimes refugee camps, but also helping with um, projects associated with, with other countries, so not, not just sort of the standard temporary camps. If you look at the uh, parliamentary database from, I think, 2000 and... It's either 2015, 2016 you'll see that the UK provided the second highest amount of um, global aid after the United States. Uh, and this was primarily directed at humanitarian aid in the immediate areas. So that included camps and that included food and that included uh, temporary accommodation uh, as well as more permanent accommodation. Uh, 
the vast majority of that from from my understanding of it i may be wrong but um it is it is that the emphasis is on sort of temporary housing and 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 you know let's call it canvas living rather yeah. than bricks and mortar and i think that um whilst important and and whilst in terms of immediacy and need uh, a very very short term solution which which undoubtedly saves lives uh, but um for understandably for the vast majority of people merely being alive is not life sure but uh, what we're talking about is the comparison uh, with com- with other countries say for example in europe so where you're correct to say that those countries are taking on more refugees my point is that they had more resources available to do so um, and more political will to do so because they weren't already at the same level uh, accommodating and paying for and providing aid to uh, refugees closer to the territory itself and do you think um with with my tongue slightly in my cheek and and this is obviously a a criticism of um in the in the nearest instance labor uh, government so uh, you know this comes from a, a genuine place no worries do you th- do you think um british and american interference in the middle east over the last 30 years do you think that uh, there is an element of reparation for that interference in the compulsion to to uh, sort of help in the immediate areas? I mean, I appreciate... That is a very, very interesting question. Um, and I've actually long been a, a non-interventionist as far as the Middle East is concerned, for very brutal reasons, to be honest, I'm a, that I'm a non-interventionist, but we, we don't need to go into that. Um, nonetheless, I, I do think uh, that Brit- British, British and American involvement has resulted in destabilisation. Um, yeah. But the problem is, we were talking about moral responsibility. There's, there's a sort of an argument to say, well, because there are humanitarian issues, we had a moral responsibility to then get involved. Um, so to then say, well, I did my, my first moral responsibility and therefore have a secondary moral responsibility is, is tricky and perhaps overly harsh on, on the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, however, I suppose to be logically consistent because... Uh, I think our ultimate responsibility was to not intervene. I, I, I would say that there probably is a stronger argument to say we then have a responsibility to look after refugees because we did intervene. It's important to the statistics you shared, the figures you shared comparing the various countries are important because, as you know, based on what we hear from the media over here, sort of the moral panic around it is very different, isn't it? I mean, you those statistics don't really match up with what we hear over here um, in terms of the influx and sort of that sort of language that's used. Um, my biggest concerns are more in terms of what's about to come um, with the new rules that uh, the Home Secretary wants to introduce. Um, and some, some of the things that she's outlined are shocking. I've mentioned a couple of them already. Um, you go on, then, so, so do you want to summarise those for us then? So yeah, what, so what I'll, give you an example. I'll give you an example. So migrants who arrive in the UK by a small boat or any illegal route um, that we see portrayed in the media quite a lot will be indefinitely liable for removal, even if they're granted asylum. Well, I suppose asylum is only temporary, generally speaking. Um, so I, was, I suppose it's not logically inconsistent with that to then say that there can be grounds for removal. The la- I mean, once again as often does with the government, it's the use of the language as well. And I don't like the 
uh, immediate differentiation between people who come here legally and illegally simply because I said as I said before it's so it's really hard to come here legally and then um yeah. so the number of people in that situation is always going to be a lot and then it's going to go on to the next point I was going to make which is our at the start of our discussion which was what should we be doing so I was going to I would just mention that and then I was going to come back to covering what I think we should be doing and things we should be thinking of so the first thing if we really want to help people who genuinely need protection uh, and aren't covered by resettlement schemes and things like that we probably need to expand some more provide some more safer routes for people for some refugees so maybe provide some more safer routes that's one thing okay um secondly we need to appreciate that not everyone has that protection they don't have access to a, a safe or a regular scheme um some people like for example in zimbabwe that <laughs> you're persecuted if you oppose the government and they're actually forced underground um rather than crossing the border uh to be registered with the un they have to literally go underground so there are situations where it's impossible um it'd be nice if we started um, I've, we mentioned the napier barracks as well it'd be nice if we just started treat, treating people with a bit of humanity and a bit of compassion making sure they've got legal representation stop using this divisive language against people who are pop, you know they're just trying to do their best by these people who are trying to make a better life for themselves and the family that would be quite nice just tone down the divisive language, provide the legal representation, be less hostile. I mean, we should have learned some lessons from the Windrush saga, um, and I'm not sure how much we've learned from that, really. And what we did learn from that is how important it is for people to be with their families. So if it's possible to settle people with their families here and make sure they're reunited with them, that would be nice. And I think the final thing is just to finally for us to actually be aware of the facts around the situation and um, the statistics you shared, Hector, are really important for people to take in that you know compared to other european countries we probably aren't taking in as many people as people think uh based on the media moral panic around it and the reality is we are one of the richest countries in the world um still <laughs> um and and uh and we was that sixth probably sixth yeah um and at the moment we give safety to I think much less than 1% of the world's refugees. So that that's just the um that's just the figures behind and what I think we should be doing. Just a bit of humanity, tone down the divisive language, open up some safer routes. Um yeah, and just a bit of fairness to the people coming in and Well, and just and that's just it, thinking really. just thinking about the the our position as as one of the wealthiest nations in the world. You know, it's no coincidence that we are one of the wealthiest nations in the world that many people do choose to come here because their second language is yeah. English and we think about why we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world and why English is such a widely yeah. spoken second language um you know those things are linked uh, we we over I know I know that there's elements of the the British media and the British population that don't like us looking at our colonial history in this context and I understand the argument that comes back and says, well, when do we stop paying for that? Uh, and the argument, argue, argument arguably, um, the, the, the argument I would say is, well, when we have afforded uh, the uh, other people in the world the same opportunities that we have. It's as simple as that. Well, there are a number of, of, of things to, to, to say there. First, firstly, just to, to deep back, I think you raised some really good points. Um, and I certainly agree with you about the importance of language. Um, just, just looking back at the the comparison between 
between countries and, and wealth, etc. I, I would say it is important to remember the, the size difference um, between the UK and... Well, the physical size not, Yeah, the physical well, the size difference. Geographical size, yeah. Geographical size difference. Um, and I think in, in fairness to the British media, uh, looking at the fact that Britain is substantially smaller than a country like Germany, even compared to France, um, and the fact that we've, we've already got um, a bit of a housing crisis uh, just for ordinary citizens. I think relative to the United Kingdom and relative to the housing available in the United Kingdom, the numbers are still comparably sizable to, to Britain, even compared with the larger numbers involved in countries such as Germany. So Deepak, in terms in terms of that, then Guy Guy and you already obviously already sort of discussed different types of ways to support refu- the refugee crisis. Or I say support the refugee crisis to um, support the <laughs> refugees in crisis. <laughs> yes, to support the refugees in crisis. Um, what would you say then, as as a sort of closing remark, in ter- in terms of you know what we've spoken about and and how you felt before and, and do you do you still feel that uh, do, do you feel that we're doing enough and what would you like to see from this government i'll show you what i said previously i think my concerns are more in terms of what's going to come over the coming months based on um the Home secretary's plans for what she wants to do i think some of them are largely unreasonable um we're concerned about her use of language against lefty activist lawyers do-gooders and despite having been um, I think the Lord Chancellor warned her against using that language, and so I mean they they she she put this video on Twitter about activist lawyers. It was like a Home Office video, and she was told to take it down, and she did. And then she was warned about not using that language, but then she did it again. So she doubled down, which is why she did it again, despite the warnings that this was resulting in um actual acts of physical violence against people in the legal profession, um. Um, as a result of that language and she doubled down she used the term like um, left do-gooders activist lawyers and even Boris himself as well used similar language in a, in the conference he he doubled down on it too when it was just unnecessary and on top of that as I said before I, I would prefer we'd still put up some more safe routes um, expand on some safe routes for refugees um, treat them like humans make sure they've got safe accommodation obviously things like the napier barracks which have come in for a lot of criticism that's not acceptable make sure they're getting the legal representation i know lbc will behind an investigation into that just make sure they are getting legal representation as is their right um which we need to emphasize because of that divisive language i mentioned before um and yeah and learn lessons from things that haven't gone well before so learn lessons from the windrush scandal uh, make sure people are as much as possible linked to the families and reunited with them and accept that we are one of the richest countries in the world, but we do actually um, give safety to less than 1% of the world's refugees, but we could probably do a little bit more um, in a safe in a safe way. And yeah. that's it. Um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give my closing remarks, I know, but perfectly well, because I know Guy will want to come back on them. So, um, you know, for, for, for me, really similar to Deepak, I think uh, as, as one of the wealthiest and, and most privileged nations on the planet, I think there's there's always more that we can do, especially when the um, case could be put forward that we are perhaps semi-responsible for 
problems elsewhere. But um, ultimately, I, I think that uh, a lot of the sort of sort of dispassionate response towards refugees and asylum seekers coming to this country from the media and the people is, um, you know, ultimately a, a, a slight government distraction um, from shortcomings in terms of investments into housing and, and, and uh, hospitals and social care. And I think uh, I, I, th I think that the government is, is very well suited to uh, a, a British population which doesn't necessarily view asylum seekers in the way that they should be viewed, which is people who are in desperate need and absolutely deserving of whatever help we can give them. For me, I think that, yes, Britain does owe a humanitarian responsibility to refugees. I think that has primarily been met uh, in providing a significant amount of immediate aid, as well as opening channels to the UK itself and taking on, uh, admittedly, a smaller number of refugees domestically. Um, but that those coming from already safe countries... Uh, really almost cease to be refugees proper uh, and it is when in the overall equation of fairness uh, it is better or, or more fair to treat them uh, it's not exactly the same but more akin to immigrants since they are not in immediate danger and as regarding um, things like the housing issues I think that there are that is something that has been used uh, in discussing whether or not we should be taking on more immigrants. I don't think that the issues for housing have um, arisen primarily out of immigration. I think that's been more to do with a sector has raised cuts in the housing sector. I think that there have been um, good and necessary reasons for, for those cuts when considering um, primarily the citizenry in, in Britain and not uh, refugees as is the ultimate responsibility of, of, of the government. And so then when in when the government has to decide on what should be done about taking in further numbers, it has to take account of the fact that there is limited limited housing d due to a multiplicity of of good factors, um, and that it, it's not incumbent upon the British people or or the government to increase its current current levels of intake into the domestic sphere when it's already de dealing with a lot uh, extra nationally. So next we're going to talk about Northern Ireland. Um, there's been really worrying scenes over the last few nights unfolding in, uh, in Belfast and uh, around the country. So guys reminded me uh, twice now <laughs> that we're going to um, we're going to come at this from a perspective where neither of us is or none of us is native of the island of Ireland. Um, you guys obviously. Bermuda, which is fun, and I'm I'm Welsh, and, and Deepak's uh, good old-fashioned English. Um, so you know we we want to preface that and make sure that we're dealing with this topic as sensitively as possible. So I mean it's a really multifaceted issue, um, issues of religion, of of national identity, of of perhaps elements of social deprivation, all playing into. Uh, what is a really, really complicated issue. So uh, who wants to come in first on that then? I mean, I mean Guy, uh, you, you're the, um, the sort of scholar, the, the, the academic, the historian, the lawyer. Um, you want to um, kick us off then? So what, what's been going on? I mean, it just looks a mess. Well, it is, for a start. <laughs> it is completely a mess. Yeah. Um, and the situation in Northern Ireland is, it has to be said, very, very complicated. Um, but fundamentally, 
it, it comes down to a what, what can be described as a, as an ethno-religious conflict, um, and that does not necessarily mean these days. Although for some people, I'm sure they do still very much hold hold dearly to the doctrine of of whichever church. church. Um, but it's it's partly also about identity, because not only whether you're British or or, or, uh, main, or, or, or Irish, shall we say, uh, although of course they are Northern Irish, um, also being Protestant or Catholic, regardless of doctrine, reflects that uh, ethnic distinction. And so we, we know how important uh, identity is. This has been, of course, part of our conversations for a number of weeks. And it's not something, even with the Good Friday Agreement, which just blends away into the background. It's still something that's completely fundamental to those people. And so, much like uh, Scottish nationalism was, was revamped by Brexit, when the border to Northern Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland and the UK came down, that immediately made uh, loyalist communities and unionist communities feel um, either threatened or at a disadvantage to compared with those of a different identity, i.e. Republicans. And so when you had this funeral which happened and the director of prosecutions then did not prosecute uh, the Sinn Féin members who attended the funeral it seemed as explicit evidence of uh, preferential treatment, shall we say, towards the Republican communities when the uh, unionists and loyalists were already feeling under threat. And then as a direct response to that, what was already heightened tensions have sparked out fairly understandably, or unsurprisingly, I should say, uh, into violence. Deepak. Um, so we we obviously mentioned the uh, guys just mentioned the the funeral that's taken place and the sort of history of the well what's the word um, sort of unrest between the two communities the two main sort of protagonists in this story the the, the unionists and the um, or the loyalists and the republicans or the Irish nationalists um, however. That would be uh, that would be phrased. What's um what's what's your take on it then? Is is it um is it purely the the sort of is it purely Brexit? Is it purely the um, religious tension, or is it a combination of, of 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 that and the nationalist and and um, sort of identity politics? What's your take? I think it's various factors all playing a role at the same time. Um, religious factors, um, issues of ethno-nationalism um, arounding things surrounding poverty um, youth groups um, maybe getting involved in things they've been encouraged to rather than taking action themselves we've got lack of opportunities in the area which I think Hector you've discussed with us before as well um, and also the role of, of Brexit as well I think a lot of these all these things have sort of come together and obviously Guy mentioned as well the funeral um, which was attended um, 
which which contributed to some of the animosity as well because um, it was sort of like a, a defiant attendance to that funeral uh, which people were upset about um, so those are a number of different things and, and I think the the one I was the one of the issues I was going to touch on was the role that Brexit has to play um, in this the protocol um, the, the the thing that the Good Friday agreement did it, it helped out with a lot of the contentious issues that were surrounding identity um, the you know when the hard border uh, was lifted with the Republic of Ireland the only issues that I mean some of the issues I mean paramilitaries were still involved but in their own areas there were issues around things like roaming rates um, dual currency issues which they they found workarounds for um, and and the other the thing which the Good Friday Agreement obviously did really well it more than anything it for those who wanted a united island didn't see any borders um, and those who wanted to remain part of the union were still a full part of the UK and it played that sort of sleight of hand which um, relatively had you know a long period of peace um and the scenes we're sort of seeing now we didn't we haven't seen for a long time um and that good friday agreement was you know it was built on trust it was built on acceptance tolerance um and and it worked well and and the and this kind of has thrown some things up in the air um and that alongside the other things that both of you have mentioned has created this sort of cocktail um of of um of anger anger and resentment that's led to some of these things happening sort of um which hasn't been nice to see. So, yeah, I mean, I, just because I know we've all mentioned it now. So the fu funeral we're referring to is the funeral of uh, Bobby Story, who's um, uh, previously a uh, senior Sinn Féin politician, but also prior to that, an active member of the IRA and, and named as the head of intelligence at the IRA. He's um, served sort of multiple prison sentences, spent a, sort of 20 years of his life in jail for um, IRA-related activities. So naturally a highly controversial figure in, on, in and of himself. Um, but then the, uh, the Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland at the time, um, or sort of now is Michelle O'Neill, so it was her and a bunch of her Sinn Féin colleagues who, uh, who had attended that funeral, which was controversial all on the basis of him being a controversial character and also it was in contravention of, of coronavirus restrictions so um, seen as seen as highly irresponsible and also a, a very diversive uh, figure and and acts by those those current Sinn Féin politicians so I spoke with uh, Guy and Deepak just before we started recording and, and um, for me it was it was a really difficult one to sort of get my head around and and um obviously the the idea that religious plays a part in it um sort of religion plays a part in it and uh the sort of national identity of both northern ireland and the republic and the island of ireland it's it's very confusing and very controversial now deepak correctly um references the effectiveness and the importance of the good friday agreement which uh if, you know, as, as, as Deepak said, as, at the time and until recently has worked um, reasonably well. So I guess uh, my, my angle is, is, is that 
yes, those are the root causes and the stem causes, and then you can apply the two sort of major incidents which appear to have kicked off all of this unrest as being the uh, the controversial funeral of, of, of Bobby Story and those who attended, and also the hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK as a result of the Brexit deal. But my feeling is that the the reason why the sort of unrest is so widespread is also largely due to um, Belfast and, and, and East Belfast being, and Northern Ireland and as, as a whole, being one of the most deprived parts of the, of the Union and a, an apparent lack of opportunity for young people where the resultant factor is, is um, or the, the, the result is uh, the sort of attainment of a criminal a criminal record is is not the deterrent it would be for someone someone like us because if you you don't see yourself as potentially going to university or, or going to a, a sort of academic profession um the the criminal record makes no difference to you in your own mind so um on that social side then um guy i mean how, how does how do you react to that we see i think we need to dig behind it i i, I generally i i think the uh, issue of deprivation is a good point in all almost all circumstances where you find um unrest it's it's exacerbated by either deprivation or inequality that's a, it, it's a, it's a very true statement but i think we can dig behind it because the, 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 if, if one looks at the spending in, in, in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland actually receives the highest level of um, per capita public spending of any part of the United Kingdom. It's a lot of money for each individual going in to the, into Northern Ireland. So one needs to ask them, why is it less effective there? Or why nonetheless are people failing to uh, cohere and create opportunities? Uh, although there are areas of, of great success in Northern Ireland where there has been a very high levels of quality of life, as a PWC survey has shown. Um, and I would suggest that the reason for that are the continuing uh, and strong latent tensions where vast sections of the community either cannot or refuse to, to, to work with each other despite the peace. And that's not conducive to a, a, an efficient society which can can produce opportunity. And then even where there are those opportunities, a number of people don't take those opportunities up because they prefer to um, carry on with or be part of uh, the various paramilitaries on both sides of the, of the issue uh, because it's so heavily in, associated with their identity. Um, it's a predisposition to um, counter a sort of socio-economic argument with the spending uh, to say you know look this is an issue but it's being spent spent on and I, I understand what you mean in that it can't be but in terms of the the families the individuals in terms of households in Northern Ireland um, they're sort of amongst the lowest on average um, in the most deprived areas, these areas that we're looking at where we're seeing the most unrest. So, you know, ultimately when household GDP or however you want to work it, household income and, and um, 
the sort of household balance is so deprived. I think it's really it's unhelpful perhaps to look at national spending when we're looking at isolated incidents dotted around the country in the more deprived areas. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not really arguing against what you say. I'm just sort of picking up on the uh, perhaps slightly misleading nature of looking at that sort well, of national figure. The point is to determine why even in those isolated areas, the investment that there is, is not effective. And I think that's what's the key issue. Yeah. No, no, fair enough. And um, we've sp- we've touched on this in, in many previous conversations, um, but uh, sort of Deepak and I agreed, and, and, and Guy, it made you put your finger on your chin and go, hmm. Um, but uh, um, my, my sort of point was that uh, another reason for unrest in Northern Ireland, perhaps, is, is, is disenfranchisement. So talking about, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I'm based in the West Midlands and Westminster looks a million miles away. Uh, so I'm just imagining what it's like in East Belfast, looking at Boris Johnson, who, I mean, I appreciate there's devolved government at Stormont, but um, it's, it's certainly in terms of the national figurehead, in terms of the, uh, the leader of that government, it is still ultimately Boris Johnson and, and the Conservative Party that passes laws that can apply to Northern Ireland. Um, I, just, I just wanted to get your thoughts then, Deepak first, and then Guy, on, on how the effect of disenfranchisement also might have a sort of cause a disconnect between the man on the street or the lady on the street in Belfast and um, the, the sort of motives of, of, the, of the government, bearing in mind also Northern Ireland voted against Brexit as well. No, I think it does. I mean, I think it comes back to what I was saying around the disenfranchisement links a lot to issues surrounding identity as well. I just think the disenfranchisement is not helped by the fact that there hasn't really been any proper or full statement from Boris Johnson about what's been happening there. Or, I mean, has he responded yet to it in any way? Uh, I mean, has, has he sent out a tweet or anything? Or has he had any commentary on, um, you know like what can be done or any suggestion that he's willing to open up dialogue with anyone about it or, um, you know, sit down with the DUP and to have a chat about anything and devolved government, anything like that. I don't really know. Um, and that doesn't help with the disenfranchisement either. From April the 7th, um, the Prime Minister tweeted, I'm deeply concerned by the scenes of violence in Northern Ireland, especially attacks on the PSNI, who are protecting public the public and businesses, attacks on a bus driver and the assault of a journalist. The way to resolve differences is through dialogue, not violence or criminality. So PSNI is the um, the Northern Irish Police. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think that's fairly generic. I'm not going to beat him for that and I'm not going to criticise him for that. But at the same time, it doesn't really... Um, I think what it, people want to see then is what the next steps are going to be and when the dialogue is going to be open and what role he's going to play in that. And that will probably Well, exactly disenfranchisement with some tangible timeline of what's going to come maybe that will help i was just going to mention that the there was obviously not to the extent that you could guarantee that there'd be violence but there was always going to be some issues um as a result of brexit simply because theresa may and boris johnson made three promises that they couldn't keep together that are impossible and it's called the Brexit trilemma, and it's it's an and it's an important point to make. So there were three promises made that 
can't all happen at the same time. It's a unicorn. It just can't happen. So promise one to say that we are going to leave the single market and the customs union and then to say there's going to be no border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain and then to say there's going to be no border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Those three things literally cannot happen together for obvious reasons. Only two of them can happen. But all three of them were promises made. Um, and so there was always going to be a situation where... Um, there was going to be an element of distrust and I guess you could argue disenfranchisement. That was inevitable. But whether or not it was going to result in what's happening now is a different story. And like I said before, I think it's a number of factors happening at one time which are contributing to some of the scenes that we're seeing there at the moment. I just wanted to make that point to just tie it back to what you were discussing in terms of Brexit, promises made and how it contributes to this. Yeah, I would I would agree with, with Deepak. Uh, I, I think that would likely contribute to feelings of, of uh, certainly mistrust and possibly disenfranchisement. Mm. Uh, I suppose the one thing you could say in defence is that some of those promises as, as as a totality, as far as I'm aware, were made by different governments or different... Yeah, different, yeah. Uh, yeah. Init- yeah. different uh, examples of Tory government. So they're both the yeah. same party, but uh, yeah. different years of election. Yeah, and I, I think um, the... Whilst you're right to say, look, it's, it's different governments. Um, if you're a, again a man or a lady on the street in Belfast, you see conservative, mm. conservative London-based um, governments uh, telling you one thing, then the other, and then ultimately not delivering on uh, one, two of them. Um, so, uh, you know that that's that's obviously going to cause issues. But just to draw you back, then, because I mean, I'm. So pretty confident in terms of the 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 the, the sort of heightened uh, tension and the, the the sort of prolonged nature of of these scenes of unrest. I I mean I I, I just wanted to sort of see Deepak because I'm Guy and I we've obviously we've gone back on back and forth a little bit on um, on the sort of social deprivation aspect. But Deepak, is is that something that I mean? Does that sound like it's a, a theory that makes sense to you? Um, I think I think guy, guy's response before to that was perfectly reasonable. That there's often an element of that with um, situations like this of this sort of unrest. There's often an element of that, um, and I think that does play a role. I think if if there are um, pockets of social groups who feel as though they are maybe not getting the opportunities which they um, feel that they should have or they don't see, you know, they don't see a future laid out in front of them going the way they want it to or they see, you know, perceived threats to their identity from various places, whether it's Brexit, whether it's um, the attendance to the funeral or whether it's um, the lack of opportunity, whether it's, um, whether it's issues on religious grounds, um, and as I said before, these things work together. I don't think it's one of these things in isolation. And I think deprivation is one of the factors. I think it's one of the factors that plays a role in this. And we've mentioned um, the riots that took place in 2011, which, um, you know, as a protest to the um, the Mark Duggan case. And, and I think a oh, lot of the... The rest- Tottenham riots that went to... Um, and the Tottenham riots, yeah. And I think yeah, a lot yeah. of that was a lot of contributions towards that was issues to do with deprivation and a lack of opportunity which contributed to it. And I think it it, it probably plays a role here as well. I'm, I, I would say it's safe to say it does play a role here as well. But like I said before, um, 
we know that the situation there has been um, tense for a long time historically and I think when you just put all these elements together it will result in frustration it will result in resentment and then uh, when it comes to if we are saying that maybe some of these some of the youth there are disenfranchised and don't have the opportunity to be involved in discourse in any other way they will display their anger and frustration in 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 some of the things that we're seeing now rather than um other ways so i mean on that basis i would say that whilst the elites as we you know for want of a better word or, or the, the sort of media and government whilst they are treating this as purely a um uh, a kind of ideological difference from what we've kind of talked about then perhaps the 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 best solution is is looking at it on from both sides so um looking at the um, legal and and um sort of gov- get the sort of what the governance and national identity arguments that are taking place and trying to address those and to to um to to find common ground but also perhaps um sort of, sort of I know guys mentioned that we're spending a lot of money in Northern Ireland per capita, the, the most in terms of the, um, the the devolved regions. Is that correct? As compared to the rest of the UK, yeah. Yeah, yeah compared to the rest of the UK. Obviously, uh, the result of that is is still high levels of, of, of economic deprivation. So looking to address that in terms of the economic de- deprivation and also as a separate issue, addressing do do you think that would be the, the 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 best way forward? Looking to separate those two issues and address them on their own basis. I think. I mean. I think um, it's probably unrealistic to expect to deal with all those issues at the same time. So it's going to take different types of discourse at different all sorts of levels, uh, whether it's local outreach, whether it's in government in committees. I think it's because of the different things we're talking about, they'll have to be discussed in different ways. I don't think we can... There'll be different groups involved in each step as well. I mean, obviously, it will take a um, a good... It should be a good, nice, integrated approach, but I think the different things that need to be dealt with are probably best dealt through different channels, and so it will have to be dealt in different ways. So, obviously, I understand. I mean, it's it's not, um, you know, a broken light bulb, which we can just switch yeah. out. I appreciate, and, and I know that... that it effectively is a, a simplistic point that uh, a simplistic way of wording the point you make uh, obviously it's not an easy quick fix but do we make the mistake of focusing i guess this is the real question do we make the mistake of focusing too much on the uh, assumption that these uh, that this unrest exists because of brexit and because of religious tension and because of political tension and do we run the risk by trying to address those issues of of not paying close enough attention to the other side or con- conversely are we, do is it both of those issues you see of equal i mean groups of issues that you see as equally important um or 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 is is one side of it more important than the other guy i definitely agree that deprivation is something we need to take account of as as we've all said, it's it's invariably an aspect of something that causes tensions with resulting in violence. But fundamentally, the ethno-religious issues are not something that ever have gone away. 
and it's not that's not something we should lose sight of and so in trying to deal with things like deprivation and the violence those are all things which go in a sense hand in hand but if we want to combat that we have to first and foremost first and foremost tackle by the horns the fact of 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 this interscene strife uh, and that's going to be one of the major obstacles to dealing with the deprivation. No, that, no, that's right. Um, I, I, one thing I would say though is, is again, this is a story I've been looking at closely this week. A because shamefully before this week, I hadn't really paid any attention to the situation since a, a very poor A level result on Irish history all those years ago. Um, but one thing that is, and I appreciate it's anecdotal, but um, one thing that is a, a sort of common theme I hear on sort of um, vox pops and radio talk shows and, and, and um, you know, sort of anecdotal evidence from members of the public is that things had been improving. Uh, tensions had been lessening. Um, the situation was getting less fraught with, with sort of heightened tension um, over a period of decades since the 90s really um and and a combination of, well no i mean brexit effectively uh was the start point for again you've got the um the republican side uh, the irish national um republican side saying you know we we didn't vote for this. We want to be part of, you know, we want to remain part of the EU. We want to join Ireland and, and, and the, uh, the sort of offshoots of that within the community, the Sinn Féin side. And then you've got um, uh, DUP effectively doing a deal with government to, uh, to, to make, help them deliver Brexit. I mean, uh, surely um, Irish border aside, that, I mean, is enough to drive any... <laughs> Uh, Republican Irish um, crazy, you know, and, and it's purely Brexit. Well, it's funny. I think you it, you sort of almost raise a point which helps me in that you're quite go for it. What you in that you're quite right that um, what we've seen has been in improving relations over a number of years, but at the same time, insofar as there's been deprivation in Northern Ireland, that's either been bad from the start which it was to some extent or has been getting worse and so we haven't seen a de- but what we haven't seen is a decline in relations in correlation to that decline which somewhat in my mind undermines the view that it's directly connected with that much more so connected with the immediate shifts relating around brexit and again it's not it's funny enough, it's not the uh, Republicans who are complaining right now or you know, violently protesting, uh, but the, the Unionists and the, and the Loyalists, Loyalists over the fact of the border. And it's, that's why it really seems to go down to me to be primarily associated with the protecting of identity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you could make a point regarding deprivation that um, I know that... Um, Parts of East Belfast, for example, I keep mentioning East Belfast, but parts of um, uh, London Derry or Derry, and and um, so there there are parts of Northern Ireland which have historically been deprived, and over a long, long period. So you know, going back to the pre-war, um, 
and and you you might be able to make the case that the lack of improvement based on comparative to other parts of the UK that do seem to have managed to maintain a, or or improve a quality a standard of living you certainly could um, make that argument i think it's a hard so one I, but it's a factor i think definitely you're right to say it's an important factor i could understand why on that basis feeling ideologically um linked to the rest of britain uh, great britain and the less the rest of the united kingdom um but also the conflict of feeling left behind by the rest of the united kingdom on on the issue of brexit for me alone that again would would be a hugely disenfranchising feeling that conflict within oneself to feel as though your country is leaving you behind sure uh, that I'm, and I'm sure that that does form part of it, hence the why they're complaining about the border. Mm. Um, though, of course, it's to be remembered that well, there's only a ten percent difference in in those in Northern Ireland for those who voted for Brexit. Um, of course, the vast majority of, of, of votes in favour of Remain will have come from Republicans who want to be more closely aligned with um, with the Republic of Ireland, which suggests that there was a very significant number of Unionists who did vote for Brexit. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, the Democratic Union Party, or the, the Democratic yes, Unionist quite. Party, the, the, obviously, um, that was their line. So, no, I mean, I, I, that's why it's so interesting. So, Deepak, uh, we've obviously touched on the religious, the political, the social, um, and uh, what other issues are there? <laughs> there are all sorts of issues. With, and yeah, absolutely, the, 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 the issues of Brexit with it. Um, have we... Uh, we covered everything. I mean, is there anything more you wanted to add? And what, what's your kind of final thought on it? And what's your hope? <laughs> There's about 10 questions in one. <laughs> um, I think we've covered everything pretty well. And as I said before, I think there's there's just a range of different factors all coming together at one time. Um, and all those things coming together at once. I mean, we discussed the attendance at the funeral. We've discussed Brexit, um, deprivation, identity, disenfranchisement, poverty. Um, I think I'll all... These all these factors are slowly coming together, which are causing some of the scenes that we're seeing. And as I've said before, the Good Friday Agreement did a fantastic job of those who wanted a united island, so no borders on the land, and those who wanted to remain part of the union were still a full part of the UK. And it played that wonderful like role in in terms of identity, that is primarily, actually. That's in terms of identity, and it, of course it links to Brexit. And as I said before about the Brexit trilemma, about the three promises that were made by, of course, that various... Um, governments and leaders or whatever um that just will not would ever would never ever happen together they were never going to happen because they just can't um only two of them can happen at once and uh we're seeing the um i guess some of the th- uh, some of the scenes we're seeing are linked to that somewhat too in relation to what i've said about identity um before as well yeah that's it it's fairly conclusive guy well First and foremost, I think we definitely all agree here. I, I hope for the violence in Northern Ireland to to end, mm. um, and for the for the end of sectarian tensions. That being said, I fully understand the the difficulties that, or, or can appreciate the difficulties that arise out of uh, ethno religious tensions, um, particularly when obviously in close proximity, um, and. Naturally, the United Kingdom government owes a deep responsibility to the people of Northern Ireland to do what it can to uh, limit these tensions 
which partly does involve um, investment um, in, into public mm. services and limiting deprivation as far as we can. Um, but we, to be effective in that, we have to try to understand the issues. Um, and of course, it is dangerous for a United Kingdom government to be sticking its foot in where it, it doesn't belong and upsetting the hornet's nest, which is always a danger, which is why it's a very difficult job being North Ireland secretary. Um, and so that is, it goes to show then the importance of fully coming to terms with the, 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 the tensions um, and in understanding them to apply the, the, the methods of, of, for example, um, anti-deprivation um, procedures and investments as effectively as possible. But the only way to do that is by first counteracting the, the, uh, the ethnic religious tensions. So, at the end of every single week, uh, Guy, Deepak and myself, we will uh, supply you with our final thoughts. So, uh, a joke, a fact or a, a little bit of information that we thought we'd like to share with you. So, as, as per usual, Guy, let's begin with you. Well, as we were talking about uh, refugees today and, and of course in, in, in memory of Prince Philip who recently passed away I, I thought it'd be fun to try and combine the two and think, think if I could think of it uh, and so I thought well let's come up with a few facts so famous facts in history about about Prince Philip one and one of which does relate to being a refugee so of course Prince Philip was was Prince of Greece uh, and when the revolution happened he went into exile but it was so dangerous for him uh, that he actually had to be smuggled out of Greece in a basket of oranges. Oh, wow. Uh, which just goes to show how dramatic things got there. <laughs> uh, then, not only did he have quite a, a bit of a tricky childhood, it has to be said, but of course he, he, he did serve with extreme distinction uh, in the Second World War uh, in, and earned medals for bravery on a number of occasions. Mentioned in the dispatches. dispatches. Exactly. And yes. one of which occasions... He actually saved uh, his his whole ship when he was second in command, HMS Wallace, from a, a, an enemy air attack at, at night. And he did that by, uh, as the planes swooped down to destroy the ship, he managed to think quickly and set them off, uh, off course towards the ship by running down to the life raft, setting them on fire and chucking them overboard so it looked like a, oh, wow. a, a drifting ship. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see why there's so much fondness for uh, for him. It's um, it's a full life, full of very, very interesting and, uh, well, in, fact, in, in that instance, heroic, heroic behaviour. And it's predicted, yeah, okay. it was predicted by a number of people, um, just in recent listening on the radio, that if he hadn't married the Queen, he'd likely would have gone on to become the head of the Royal Navy. Wow. Yes. No, I've, I saw that. There was a special programme on the BBC last night. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, he was uh, certainly on a course for the, uh, for the very top. Um, OK, it's like change the format then. Um, Deepak, do you want to go Sure, next? yeah, well, I'll do my On This Day. So the day, date we're recording is the 10th of April. And On This Day... In 1998, we signed the Good Friday Agreement. Absolutely. No, no, well, it's, just, it's rather shone a bright light on that this week. Um, okay, well, on a, on a lighter note, also to, um, to mark uh, the passing of Prince Philip, uh, we mentioned before, an interesting and full life, but another thing he was well known for was... Um, 
uh, well, I mean, some people might call it gaffes. Some people might say getting very, very close to the, the line that separates the acceptable from the unacceptable. But I thought I would, I would share one that I, I thought um, pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> so um, in a conversation, obviously, he and the Queen would be out and about meeting um, people from various different professions. And uh, one day he, he, he was um, introduced to a, a female solicitor and uh, he, he left her with this line. He said, I thought it was against the law these days for a woman to solicit. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that's a, a, a line that uh, I think rather sums up his um, old-fashioned, let's be honest, but also, also sense of mm. fun. Um, and uh, uh, happily... Uh, he leaves a, a legacy of many, many, many fine achievements, uh, n namely the uh, Duke of Edinburgh mm. Award and uh, all of the works and all the patronages he has with um, some very important charities and and uh, some really, really good work. So I'm sure we all agree, and you know, we definitely, definitely want to um, share our condolences mm. with with the members of the royal family and and everyone uh, uh, affected by by his passing but um yeah he lived a great life so thanks very much boys um hopefully we will meet again soon uh, next week for an another um, discussion of the topics of the day so uh, see you later Ta right, see you later guys thank you i'm hungry i want to have lunch let's go <laughs>